Leave it to Darren to get a hold of a hymn and sing it before even the writers of the hymn get to. I love that. Uh, By the way, I have a little special treat for you. Um, I give you personal greetings to Grace Bible Church from Dr. John MacArthur. Um, We got to have lunch with him over the SING conference, and Sylvia and I had a conversation with him, and he said, please, please make sure and greet the church on my behalf. And so he sends his greeting uh, and his appreciation for the gospel faithfulness that you have demonstrated here. Well, it was just east of Boston, Massachusetts. In the mid-18th century, there was an epidemic that broke out In towns and villages, a ravaging disease which threatened the whole community. And in response, the great Jonathan Edwards, pastor of the large and thriving Northampton Church, he called for a time of fasting and prayer, and he he preached a sermon entitled, The Most High, A Prayer Hearing God. And as was usual for this theological genius, Edwards managed to extract an entire sermon from one half of a verse Psalm 65, verse 2, O thou that hears prayers. And he asserted that God is a prayer-hearing God because it's woven into the very fabric of his character. It's who he is. Edward said this, Though he is infinitely above all and stands in no need of creatures, yet he is graciously pleased to take a merciful notice of poor worms of the dust. He manifests and presents himself as the object of prayer, appears as sitting on a mercy seat that men may come to him by prayer. When they stand in need of anything, he allows them to come and ask it of him, and he is inclined to hear their prayers. God in his word hath given many promises that he will hear their prayers. And for that church in Northampton of some 600 believers, they were entering into a time of costly prayer, They were fasting, they were crying out to God in hope that God would have mercy on their community and get rid of this epidemic. And that's our theme this morning, the the costliness of prayer, the cost of fruitful prayer. And this continues our look at John 15 and 16 in which we see that it costs to follow Christ. There's a price. Salvation is definitely the free gift of God, but the follower of Christ then forsakes all to follow him. And we've taken somewhat as our theme verse, Luke fourteen thirty three, where Jesus said, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so we're looking at what we're calling costly Christianity. And so far in John 15, we've seen the cost of fatherly discipline and the cost of committed perseverance. And today we'd like to look at the cost of fruitful prayer. As we look at John 15, just verses 7 and 8 today. Now, why would we ever say that prayer costs, that prayer involves some sort of sacrifice, that prayer involves giving? Uh, Fruitful prayer isn't merely an easily breathed prayer of thanks when you're eating a meal or looking at a beautiful sunset. It's prayer with a point. It's prayer with goals in mind. It's prayer that moves mountains. It's prayers to see impossible things done. These are prayers that concern themselves with much loftier things than just my own prayer requests. These are, these are prayers which persevere. They travail. In his book, Transforming Prayer, Daniel Henderson writes concerning prayer lists. 
lists of prayer requests. And here's what he says. He says, quote, The fundamental difference between our prayer lists and the prayer concerns we find in the Bible is that we pray about personal problems while most of the biblical prayers focus on Christ's purposes. Or as one writer expressed, quote, We spend more prayer energy trying to keep sick Christians out of heaven than trying to keep lost people out of hell. That's really true. So this sort of fruitful prayer, prayer which goes beyond just our personal needs and requests, what's it based in? How do you get there? How do you pray those sorts of prayers? Are you going to walk out of here today and instantly have a transformed prayer life? No. There is a process. There is a, there is a work that's involved. Our text gives us the answer how you get there, though, how you get to this sort of fruitful prayer. Look with me at John 15. We'll just read verses 7 and 8 as the Lord Jesus continues his farewell discourse to his disciples. Verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now this is a rich text has key concepts for a life of fruitful prayer. And so I'm just going to use some one-word descriptors for these concepts, these ideas. Here's our first key concept. We'll just call it foundation. Foundation, very simple word. You don't just jump into fruitful prayer. There's a foundation to be laid first, a condition to be pursued. Verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. This is the foundation, the condition. It's the stipulation to effective, fruitful prayer. You don't just read a book on prayer. You don't just learn a prayer technique. There's a foundation to be laid. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Now, in previous messages, we've already established what it means to abide in Christ. It simply means to remain with him, to persevere in the faith, that you are faithful all the way to the end. True perseverance doesn't mean we get to alter the faith as once delivered. The easy believism proponents that we've spoken of have done just that. They've altered the historic biblical faith to leave out the idea of obedience as a demonstration of true salvation. And as I mentioned in an earlier message, this is what Jude warned of in Jude verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God does not mean I can do whatever I want, I can say whatever I want, I can think whatever I want because I'm under grace. That's not grace. That is, according to Jude, denying Christ. Whether you say you follow him or not doesn't matter. You follow him by staying faithful, persevering. But what's the practical outworking of abiding in Christ? He says, if my words abide in you. This is the idea of the word of God taking root in your, in your mind and in your heart such that the word governs your actions, governs your words, governs your attitudes. The word of Christ, the word of God abiding in this word. We could say there's really two components to abiding in the Word of God. I'm going to spend a lot of time on the first one and briefly mention the second because the second one is my entire sermon next week and I don't want to give away all the goodies. But these two components to abiding in the Word of Christ, knowledge and obedience. Knowledge and obedience. You cannot have one without the other effectively. 
We abide first in the knowledge of the word of God. And we'll spend a few moments on this. Romans 15, 14 says we're to be filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. The very last words of the Apostle Peter to us, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's a pursuit, there's a drive, there's a desire to know the Word of God and thereby know the God of the Word. There's a, a push to this. And God has provided His primary means to pursue the knowledge of God. It is happening right now. It is preaching That is his primary means. Preaching was the singular means to knowing God's word many, many centuries before the average person had access to a personal copy of the Bible. The Apostle Paul famously put his disciple Timothy under oath that preaching would be his primary passion and pursuit in the church at Ephesus. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. This is the motto, this is the slogan, this is the driving force behind any faithful preacher. Preach the word. This is one of the most important words for preaching in the New Testament. It's used 61 times. It means to proclaim something aloud. It means to be a herald. It means to urge belief. This is not a word that you apply to having coffee with someone at Starbucks. It is a public proclamation that's done with power and with vim and with vigor and with urging and with beseeching and with begging. And verse 2 goes on to command Timothy Be ready in season or out of season. What does that mean? Whether preaching is popular or not. Whether the hearers want to hear it or not. Mary, Queen of Scots, was angry with the great reformer, John Knox, great Scottish reformer. Mary, Queen of Scots, was angry because John Knox kept exposing her sin in his Sunday morning sermons. And finally, she brought him to have audience with her And she said, all right, you want to confront my sins, that's fine, but come here and do it privately. I want you to do it privately. And and basically, what John Knox said, respectfully, I don't work for you. And he said, if you want me to confront your sins in person, then come to church, and I'll be happy to do it with you sitting right there. And he just fired back. He said, "I, I don't work for you. I'm preaching to the glory of God, not to please men. That's preaching in season and out of season. And how is the preacher to do this? Paul goes on in in 2 Timothy 4, reprove, that means expose sin. Rebuke, that means to tell you to stop sinning. And exhort, that means to tell you to start obeying the Lord. That's what preaching is. And the preacher is to do this with patience and teaching. What does it mean to be patient in preaching? Does that mean to use a soft voice and to say, if you feel like sinning, just do it a little bit. Is that what patience is? No, patience has the idea of repetition. Peter said in 2 Timothy 1.13 that he was determined to, quote, stir you up by way of reminder, meaning he was repeating truth over and over again. Somebody says our preacher repeats himself a lot. That's a compliment. It means he's doing his job. Peter gives a reason. So that you may be able at any time to recall these things. That's a great reason. And so it's your duty to cultivate a discipline and a hunger concerning the preached word of God. But we tend toward complacency, don't we? That's our human nature. 
Paul went on to warn Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There should ever be in your heart a craving for the preached word of God, a craving to hear one more sermon, to hear the word preached again. The, the psalmist in one, Psalm 119 says of the word of God, he says, I seek your word. I've fixed my eyes on your word. I've stored up your word in my heart. He delights, he meditates, he beholds the word of God. He's consumed with longing for God's word. There is one thing that a Christian ought never to say concerning the preached word. We ought never to say, I'm full. We never say that. In the classic uh, Little House on the Prairie book series by Laura Ingalls Wilder, on one occasion, the little Ingalls family is riding out of winter all alone in Dakota Territory in 1880. And by God's providence, knocking at the door in the midst of a storm, appears at their lonely house a preacher. And they set up their little living area to hear a sermon. The first in many months that they've been able to hear, and they were eager. Why? Laura Ingalls Wilder writes, No one wanted to lose this opportunity to hear a sermon. What a great attitude. You should miss a meal before you miss a sermon. You should miss some sleep before you miss a sermon. You should miss some entertainment before you miss a sermon. How about taking your vacation during the week instead of over the weekend before you miss a sermon? You should miss anything else before you miss a sermon. We live on these. They're the food for our souls. Now, of course, in our era, anyone can read the Bible for themselves. Let's talk about Bible reading for a moment. This is a fulfillment of what Bible translator William Tyndale said when he defied the Pope in the 16th century. And he said famously, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the Scripture than thou dost meaning all you priests who hold the Bible to yourself, the regular person is going to know more than you do. And it came true. If you want to know the Lord, can I say this? Read the Bible more than you read books about the Bible. If you find yourself reading theology more than you find yourself reading the Bible, you've got it backwards. Consider this. To know the word of God, let's reflect in particular on the epistles of the New Testament, those teaching books which give us the most straightforward, direct guidance for our daily lives. It takes 20 minutes to read Galatians. takes another 20 minutes to read Ephesians. takes 14 minutes to read Philippians. takes 13 minutes for Colossians. 19 minutes total for 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 34 minutes total for 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and in a pinch, you can read Philemon, 2nd John, 3rd John, and Jude in 11 minutes and say, I read four books of the Bible today. If you read 15 minutes a day, you would get through those 13 New Testament books three and a half times in a month, feeding your own soul. Abiding in the word of God has the component of knowledge. You cannot abide in the word if you don't hear it and live it and know it and breathe it. And by the way, sing it. But you also have the component of obedience. The the connection of abiding in Christ and obedience to the word is very clear even in this chapter. Look with me at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Very clear connection between abiding in Christ and obedience to the word. We'll spend significant time on that next week. Now remember, this is just the foundation. You must have a foundation of the word of God. This is a lifetime pursuit. And and I got to tell you this, this is the major determining factor in your prayer life. A nonchalant or a neutral attitude concerning the word of God will absolutely decimate your prayer life. Proverbs 28.9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Can I put it this way? It's as if God is saying, If you won't listen to me, why should I listen to you? We start by listening first. The foundation of fruitful prayer is abiding in Christ, which means abiding in his word. Just second key concept in fruitful prayer. We'll call this one concentration. Concentration. If you aren't certain what to pray, this simply means you need a deeper well from which to draw. You need direction. And by abiding in the word of Christ, your mind is transformed to think more and more like he does. And so Jesus says, if the previous condition is met, abiding in my word, then, verse 7, ask whatever you wish. I have never one time told any of my children, ask whatever you wish. I have never said that, especially when they're little. Why? Because I don't trust them. Because they're little. And they'll say things like, I want a crate of Twinkies. I want to drive your car. No, you're six. That's not going to happen. Why is Jesus comfortable telling his disciples, ask whatever you wish? Well, he's confident to give them this freedom Because he knows they're going to ask for that which is pleasing to him. They're going to ask for the right things. The result of abiding in the word of Christ is a concentration in your prayers. Concentration of requests which are aimed at kingdom purposes, God-honoring purposes, God-glorifying purposes. Because if you're steeped in the scriptures, you will naturally pray what is important to him. It'll be natural to you. And what are you praying for? To bear spiritual fruit through the power of the vine who is Christ. And this is best done by knowing what the Bible says concerning the fruit that you're to bear. I want to go back to the list that we compiled from the New Testament of the types of spiritual fruit we can expect. And let's see how this drives our prayers. We talked about the fruit of repentance that spiritual fruit is seen in changing sinful ways. John the Baptist preached, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is a, a genuine desire to adjust your life to that which is pleasing God, to God. And so how does that drive your prayers? Well, you include in your prayer life a consistent diet of confession and asking the Lord to search out your heart and to work you and to mold you. The old joke is, don't pray for humility. No, you should pray for humility. I should pray for humility. The fruit of repentance. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit was given by Paul in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This section of Galatians is bookended by the issue which provoked Paul to tell them this. What was the issue? A few verses earlier, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And a few verses later, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What's the fruit of the Spirit for? It's how you treat each other in the church. That's how you bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
And so what are you praying for? You're praying to love the body of Christ. You're praying to be involved in the body of Christ at a deep relational level. You're praying to demonstrate graciousness, not only in your church, but in your family and with those around you. We looked at the fruit of satisfaction. This is total and full satisfaction in Christ because you've disowned your idols of worldly happiness. In Luke eight fourteen, Jesus is explaining the parable of the soils and he explains that the seed of the gospel falling onto thorny soil gets choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. That we're to be satisfied in Christ. And what does this mean in prayer? This means you're continually asking the Lord to root out that which is unsatisfying. Root out the idols of my heart. Root out those things that are so important to me that I'd be willing to hurt someone to have it. How about the fruit of righteousness? The Apostle Paul gave a quick list of spiritual fruit. In Philippians 1, 9, and 10, he prays that the Philippian church may abound more and more in love, knowledge, discernment, wisdom, purity, and blamelessness. And he summarizes in verse 11 of Philippians 1, he summarizes these as being, quote, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What a great prayer. Basically, the prayer for love, knowledge, discernment, wisdom, purity, and blamelessness says, Lord, protect my heart protect my mind, protect my body, and protect my reputation. That's a fruitful prayer. We looked at the fruit of evangelism. In the same chapter, Paul says from prison that continuing on in this life, quote, means fruitful labor for me, meaning gospel opportunities. Listen, the church is built on the backs of the prayers of the saints. Prayers for the lost are golden, Prayer is the means by which God saves the elect. We're burdened to pray for the lost, both by name and in general. Sometimes Christians have difficulty praying for our leaders. And and I don't know about you, as I watch the news, I, I fear that we have the most crazy and insane leaders our country's ever had now. And it's hard for us to pray for them, but I think every Christian could say, I'll at least pray for their salvation Pray for them to come to faith in Christ. Pray for them to know my Savior. And then we looked at the fruit of church faithfulness. The fruit of church faithfulness. Paul said in Colossians 1.10 that he was praying for the Colossian church that they would be, quote, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Those two fruits happen in the context of the church. Your church really ought to be near the top of your prayer list. It's at the top of mine. Because the church is God's means by which he's bringing kingdom citizens into the family of God. This is your family on this earth. We are family. We're we're not to be aloof. We're not to be mildly associated. And your prayers will motivate you to have integrity and zeal for your church. Zeal and service. Zeal to know the word. Being all in for your local church instead of mildly connected and mildly committed. If I could put it as one preacher said, we're not to be mildly prayerful and committed. We're to be wildly prayerful and committed. We're to be like the church at Thessalonica who worked in faith and labored in love for the ministry. And somebody says, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that I feel that connected to this church, so I'm going to hang back a little bit. Well, you're part of the problem. Get in. How do you get into your local church? Hold your nose because some people stink and jump in. 
That's how. Your prayers now are being concentrated through abiding in the word of Christ upon the things that are spiritual fruit in your life and the broad scope of Christ's kingdom program. And it yields deep, rich prayer. There's a third key concept in fruitful prayer. We'll call it motivation. What's your motivation? Verse 8, Jesus says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. The glory of God the Father is an important theme in John's gospel. When Jesus' own soul was troubled over his impending death, he prayed in John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. Then the voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. When Jesus was at the point of despair of his own impending death, what did he pray for? The glory of God. Right after Judas was excused from the upper room, after having been exposed as a betrayer, Jesus said in John 13, 3, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. His obedience to submit to the cross would bring glory to the Father. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth. Jesus did not come to glorify himself. He came to glorify his Father. Jonathan Edwards wrote, it appears that all that is ever spoken of in the scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. That's what everything in the Bible points to, everything. And so the father is glorified in the obedience and accomplishment of the son, as the gospel of John says multiple times. It's a very short step then forward to see the father glorified in the fruitful obedience of those who are united to his son. That just as the son of God is pointing toward the glory of God, those who are connected, united with the son, who abide in the son, we step forward toward the the glory of the father. And listen, our fleshly sinfulness, we struggle to pray solely in agreement with that which glorifies God. That's hard for us. It's easy to believe that prayer exists so that God can be used to give us glory instead of us being used to aggressively campaign for God's glory. How about starting a prayer like this? Everything that I'm about to say, Lord, let it be only for your glory and all about you. But this is, this is an amazing and a life-altering filter through which to pray, to pray for that which would bring God glory. Let's consider these, these fruits, the fruitfulness we saw in the New Testament. Consider the fruit of repentance. Father, glorify yourself in my sorrow over my own sin. I want to be like John the Baptist where I become less and God becomes more. Glorify your name by continuing to give me a soft, repentant, humble heart. How about praying concerning the fruit of the Spirit? Father, I desire to reflect your character by being more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled with those around me. Glorify yourself. Demonstrate the power of the gospel through me in the way I treat every person around me. How about praying for the glory of God and the fruit of satisfaction? Father, continue to expose and show me idols in my heart. Teach me to find my soul satisfaction in Christ and in your goodness and your love. I do not desire to share your glory with any idol in my life. Your glory is not to be shared. It belongs to you and to you alone. 
How about praying through the fruit of righteousness? Father, continue to grow me and mature me in knowledge and discernment and wisdom and purity and blamelessness. Help me to behave myself in my heart and in my mind and in my actions and in my words in a way which gives you glory and the honor that is due to you. How about the fruit of evangelism? Father, glorify yourself by making me an instrument for your kingdom expansion. I pray for my friend. I pray for my parent. I pray for my child. I pray for my spouse. They would be drawn to your saving grace. Chase after them, Lord. Save them for your glory. Give me opportunities to proclaim the gospel to them that I might see the fruit of that labor, that all glory and all thanks might go to you. And how about the fruit of church faithfulness? Father, glorify yourself in the church. Forgive me for being critical, for being arrogant. Help me to bear fruit by being faithful in service, faithful in prayer. Help me to bear fruit by increasing in the knowledge of God and being a helpful, joyful encouragement to those around me. Keep me from a critical spirit and help me to be part of making the church great and holy and gospel-filled. This is a worship-based, glory-based approach to prayer. When our hearts are fixed first and foremost on that which glorifies God, oh, your prayers will flow. You won't have to say, I don't know what to say because the Lord will help you. By the way, these are the sorts of prayers which build an appetite for God in our souls. Our prayers are changed and transformed from longing for just answers to longing for answers which shine the light of glory to the one on whom it's due, the majestic, sovereign God that we serve. And you know what's going to happen? You know what's guaranteed? Our key concepts are foundation, concentration, motivation. Here's a guarantee. We'll see, we'll call this concept expectation. Expectation. At the end of verse 7, Jesus said, it will be done for you. In the middle of verse 8, you bear much fruit. Jesus explained in his parable of the soils that when the seeds of the gospel are sown in the good soil, speaking of genuine regeneration and conversion, something marvelous happens. Something tremendous happens. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, the traditional interpretation is that that's speaking only of souls one to Christ. That's a very narrow view. The the fruit that we expect to bear is much bigger than just souls one to Christ. There is a vast scope of possibilities as we've already seen. The spiritual fruit is all those things that we've identified from the New Testament through the faithful prayers of the saints. That's you. Listen, big things happen. Mighty things happen. Powerful things happen. These are things you may or may not know about in this life. You may find out later, but trust me, when the impact of your fruitful prayers are listed for you in heaven, you will be astonished, you will be shocked, you will be amazed. Let me give you an example. Writing to the Romans, Paul mentioned in passing, just almost a a brief little mention in Romans 15, that he hoped to spread the gospel in Spain. The Bible never tells us whether Paul made it or not. I and mean, you flip through the pages. Come on, did he make it? Did he make it? You get to the end. No, no, we don't know if he made it or not. But we do know he desired to see the gospel spread in, in Spain. And he's the Apostle Paul. He certainly prayed about it. 
He certainly asked the Lord for the gospel to go forth in Spain. Fast forward 1,500 years, the heresy of Roman Catholicism has taken firm root in Spain. The Inquisition, this is the group marked, charged with enforcing the Catholic religion in Spain. They had a firm grip on the people. But when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door in 1517, sparking the continual growth of the Great Reformation, a man named Valera brought the gospel to Seville in Spain. And like Luther, he was converted to Christ simply by reading the Bible. So he began to preach the gospel in Seville. Now in Seville, one out of one people were Catholic. A hundred out of a hundred The Inquisition imprisoned him almost immediately. And Valera died in prison. But it was too late. By the time they got him, 800 people believed, came to faith in Christ, and started their own church. The first Protestant church in Spain. By 1560, the Inquisition was bolder. Now they were burning Christians at the stake by the dozens. But the true faith only grew. A Spanish Reformed Catechism was printed in the 1550s. And interestingly, the whole, Span- the whole Bible in Spanish was completed long before other versions were, almost a century before the English King James Bible. And by the way, that 1550 or so translation of the Spanish Bible is still basically the one in use today. Today, Catholicism still has a chokehold on Spain, but as recently as just a few years ago, a conference inspired by Together for the Gospel has been developing and strengthening the church in Spain. Now pastors of Reformed churches are gathering together in growing numbers, in strengthening numbers to encourage one another. Since 2010, the Master's Academy International, which is the missions arm of the Master's Seminary, has been training pastors in Spain at a high level. We don't know if Paul made it to Spain, but we know what his prayers did. We know what the Lord laying on his heart for these unsaved people in Spain did. 2,000 years later, the fruit of those prayers are still being seen. Don't be surprised at answered prayer. If the Lord does something that you ask and you're shocked at that, you need to pray more. You need to ask for more. You should live your life in expectation that your prayers will bear fruit in your life. Now, it won't be exactly what you envisioned, but it will be better. Very often in counseling, I like to make a list of the impact that a trial and suffering has had on someone. And I'll ask a counselee, make a list of all the good things that have happened as a result. Here's how the list usually goes. It's almost the same every time. I'm forced to pray all the time. I've been in the word more than I ever have been. I'm learning to trust the Lord more. I'm seeing my own sin exposed. My priorities are changing and I've learned that God will glorify himself. You know what that's called? That's called bearing spiritual fruit. Because now the foundation of the word of God is making your prayers concentrated with the motivation of God's glory, you should have expectation. Jesus said, it will be done for you. You will bear fruit. And in this process of fruit-bearing prayer with the foundation of the word of God, a concentration of intelligent prayers based on knowing God's will in scripture with the motivation of seeking that which glorifies the Father, now with an expectation of answered prayer, we get a bonus feature a sweet, sweet, precious addition that we'll call confirmation. Confirmation. You get the added bonus of being certain of your salvation in Christ. 
Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do you know you're a true believer in Christ? How do you have that assurance of heaven? That's easy. You have an ever-lengthening track record of seeing the Lord produce in your life the fruit of repentance, of the Spirit, of satisfaction, of righteousness, of evangelism, of church faithfulness. And if you had written them down, you would have notebook after notebook after notebook and page after page after page of answered prayers, of kingdom prayers. And you look at that record and you say, I am a child of the living God. Look at his work in my life. This gives sweet confirmation of salvation. I'd like to take a few minutes and circle back to the foundation. Abiding in the word of Christ because this is so, so intimately connected with prayer. They're really joined at the hip. I'd like to go to the Old Testament. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And we'll look at verse 41 and following for just a moment here. In verses 41 through 43, the psalmist has requested of the Lord to strengthen the power of God's word in his life. He wants the word of God to be strengthened in his life. Verse 41 of Psalm 119, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. But then, not only does the psalmist request that the Lord strengthen the power of God's word in his life, but he resolves to strengthen the power of his life in God's word. And the psalmist makes five resolutions. Here they are. His first resolution, I will listen. I will listen. Verse 44 I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Keep is the same word translated in Deuteronomy 6. Hear or or listen, O Israel. These are highly related concepts. To listen means you obey and to obey proves that you listen. In the days of ancient Israel, the average family didn't have a copy of the law of God. It was read aloud periodically. Imagine how the faithful Israelite would be paying attention if this was the only reading of the law that they might hear for a while. We read the scriptures here every Sunday morning, generally speaking, an entire chapter. Can you imagine how much better you would pay attention if you didn't have a Bible? And if that was your sole guidance for the week? We have infinitely greater resources at our disposal, but they don't do any good unless we resolve to listen. And so the psalmist says, I will listen. He makes a second resolution. I will rest. I will rest, verse 45, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. He's resolved to walk in a wide place. Now, what's true today is true in ancient times. The quality of a road makes all the difference when traveling, right? In Roman times, they were famous for their roads, not just that they were paved and wide, but they were protected, and they were legendary for how straight they were. They went by wells of water and by places to buy food. And so what is the psalmist saying? I'm resolved to walk, speaking of your daily life of faith in the Lord, in a wide place. He's saying, I'm going to travel a road that is nourishing and safe and well-lit and delightful. How? For I have sought your precepts. The word sought is an interesting word. It means to beat, 
or trample a path. This is a wonderful play on words. What is he saying? I shall walk in a wide place paved with the word of God. One of the most famous verses in Psalm 119 speaks of this safe, wide, well-lit road. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He'll be restful. He makes a third resolution. I will prepare. I will prepare. Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimony before kings and and shall not be put to shame for I find delight in your commandments which I love. What is this talking about? Jesus gave his disciples some encouraging news about their future ministries. Here is his encouragement in Matthew 10. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now, you would think that Jesus is now about to give them encouragement about how to bear up under being flogged and captured and dragged before officials. You can do it. Hang in there. Just be prayerful. Trust the Lord. You can get through this. But that's not what he does. You know what his concern is? His concern is that they be prepared for what to say. He continues with this tremendous promise. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus' concern wasn't that they were going to survive the persecution because they weren't ultimately. His concern was that they answer well in the midst of it. The psalmist here is saying, even if I must give testimony before kings, I won't be ashamed. I'll have something to say. Why? I delight in your commandments. The psalmist has resolved to have something to say when called upon to do so. And the only thing we have worth saying comes from Scripture. Now, you probably won't be dragged before kings, but you can speak God's word into every portion of your life, into your marriage, Titus 2, love your husbands. Ephesians 5, love your wives. With your children, Proverbs 1, 8, forsake not your mother's teaching. You can speak the word of God into your time, your schedule. Ephesians 5, look carefully how, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. You can speak to the unbeliever. 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. You can even speak the word of God into the most mundane tasks of your life. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The knowledge of the word of God prepares you. It teaches you how to pray. And you're simply praying for those things that are already revealed in the word. These are fruit-bearing prayers. But the psalmist makes a fourth resolution. I will depend. I will depend, verse 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. Now, we tend to immediately associate the lifting of hands with praise and adoration of the Lord, especially when there's a key change during some music. Well, let's examine it further, though. There's one major New Testament text about the raising of hands, 1 Timothy 2.8. I want the men in every place to pray, lifting holy, holy hands without wrath and dissension. 
So first of all, in this context, lifting hands is associated specifically with prayer. In fact, grammatically, it makes no sense if it's not associated with prayer. But the emphasis here isn't on physical actions. The emphasis is on purity of heart. Let us lift holy hands as opposed to dirty hands, dirty with my own sin, without wrath and dissension, not dirty with bitterness and anger. So generally, it's associated with prayer. But the Old Testament has numerous references to lifting hands. 1 Kings 8, Solomon lifted his hands toward heaven while kneeling before the Lord, praying the prayer of dedication of the new temple. And this prayer is a request for God's help in the future. His hands are spread out because it's a desperate request. He's basically saying, when Israel goes completely off track, please, please, please don't forsake us. Ezra 9, verse 5, Ezra is on his knees. His cloak and his tunic is torn. His hands are lifted up and he's praying in confession of Israel's national sin. This is a prayer of confession and lament. Nehemiah 8, verse 6, at the reading and teaching of God's word, the returned exiles of Israel, they have lifted their hands and they've bowed to the ground saying, Amen and Amen. But the text tells us why they were responding to God's word this way. They were weeping and lamenting the fact that they had gone so far from the word of God. Psalm 28, 2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. This is associated with a plea for help. It's a lament. Psalm 63, verse 4, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. This is a psalm of David expressing his his desperate need for the Lord while he's on the run in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm 88, verse 9, My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. This is a song of grief. This is a cry for help. In the Old Testament, the overwhelmingly primary emphasis of lifting your hands in prayer is associated with lament and with dependence. And so we can better interpret verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments. The psalmist is expressing a resolution to depend on the word of God in his time of lament, in his time of need. What does it mean to depend on your commandments, which I love? It means to acknowledge complete reliance on the word of God to walk you through every step of life. Because listen, it is, it, the word of God moves dangerous, deceitful things out of the way. It moves out of the way your opinions, moves out of the way your experiences, moves out of the way your emotions. Those are dangerous and they will fool you. In essence, you're lifting up holy hands that are empty to the Lord so they can be filled with What? with the knowledge of God's word. And that makes you dependent. Constantly asking the question, what would scripture teach me to do right now? Which, by the way, tells you what to pray. What would God have me pray right now? And the psalmist makes a fifth resolution. I will immerse. I will immerse. The end of verse 48. And I will meditate on your statutes. It makes us think of Psalm 1. One and two, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Same word. It's a word that means to murmur, to mutter under your breath. It's to muse. It's to think about something. 
This is the idea of capturing a verse or capturing an idea from Scripture and intentionally repeating it to yourself over and over and over again. It is the scriptural thought of the day, so to speak, so that it's at the tip of your tongue. These five resolutions, I will listen, I will rest, I will prepare, I will depend, I will immerse. And the psalmist made this easy to remember. Each of these resolutions is associated with a part of your body. I will listen, verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. These are your ears. I will rest, verse 45, and I will walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. Those are your feet. I will prepare, verse 46, I will also speak of your testimony before kings and shall not be put to shame as my mouth. I will depend, verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. Those are my hands, my empty hands, needing to be filled with the word of God. And the fifth resolution, I will immerse. The end of verse 48, I will meditate on your statutes. That's your mind. Now, what do you call it when your ears, your feet, your mouth, your hands, and your mind are fed and influenced and moved by the scriptures? That's called the word of Christ abiding in you. That's what moves you. That's what drives you. That's what informs your prayers. If you're having trouble knowing what to pray, you don't need to pray more. You need to hear the word of God more. And then the prayers will come. Jonathan Edwards ended his sermon, A Most High, The Most High, A Prayer Hearing God. And we'll let him speak from the pulpit once again for our final exhortation. Finally, seeing that we have such a prayer hearing God as we have heard, let us be much employed in the duty of prayer. Let us pray with all prayer and supplication. Let us live prayerful lives, continuing instant in prayer, watching thereunto with all perseverance, praying always without ceasing, earnestly and not fainting. Amen and amen. Our Father, we come to you now so, so thankful for the word of God which creates in us fruitful prayer. And Lord, we pray to be those that would sink to our knees all the more, that would lift up holy hands, empty hands, to be filled with the word of God, to be filled with comfort and the dependence that comes through us, through you as we walk with you day by day, month by month, year by year. And Lord, I would pray also for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl here today whose only prayer that they need to pray is one asking for mercy, the mercy of forgiveness, that they need to ask for the gift of salvation. And I pray, Lord, that today might be the day that you would move in their hearts, that they would come to faith in Christ so that their prayers might be heard. You will not hear the prayers of the unrighteous unless you deem some higher purpose for doing so but generally speaking Lord the unrighteous can expect nothing from you except wrath but your love is still open the door is still open to the cross and I pray Lord not only for the believers present among us to pray fruitful costly prayers to travail in prayer to beseech you in prayer to beg you in prayer but I pray also Lord for those that may not know you that even now your spirit would be working in them so that they could utter their first righteous prayer of thanksgiving for salvation 
of thanksgiving for the cross, of thanksgiving for Christ. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.